Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week we conclude our trilogy of episodes on Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings with the final film, The Return of the King, and say goodbye to Frodo, Sam, Aragorn, Gandalf, and the rest of the ensemble. This has been such a fun thing to do in this dreary year. Neither of us had seen these movies in quite some time, and it was a total joy to revisit them. So we're very excited to talk about this last installment. If you would like to re-watch the movies along with us, our commentary tracks are available to subscribers on Patreon. And we have to thank straight away our uh, sponsor for these episodes, Lucy, who truly just thank you so much. This was so much a fun. A hero. A true hero. Yes. <laughs> So we obviously, you know, talked about the movie when we watched it for that commentary track. And we have a number of topics to discuss for this episode, including uh, the Academy Awards, which we will get to at the end of the episode, which is, you know, a passion of mine, obviously. But I thought we could start just with some sort of general takeaways about the movie and the trilogy as a whole. One of the things that I was really thinking about a lot watching this film was how completely unique these movies are in the modern pop cultural landscape. And obviously, I was thinking that watching the first two as well, but it really came home for me in this third one, because I think the kind of epic scope of the storytelling and the like sentimentality, and I don't mean that word in a negative way, of these movies is like at its peak in this film. And we talked about this a bit in that commentary track, but I just think it's really, really hard to pull off the kind of like sincere epic storytelling that Peter Jackson and his collaborators achieve in these movies. And basically no one even tries anymore. And the fact that these exist is really remarkable. And they spawned like the current blockbuster era in a lot of ways. But the current blockbuster era bears no resemblance to these films at all. So it's kind of fascinating. I mean, it's really interesting to compare with the sci-fi genre, right? Because it's like Lord of the Rings is the ultimate kind of absolutely mainstream Western fantasy story. Like it is the classic. It has been ripped off by millions of other things. It's hugely influential. And it's also influenced by like the same sources that, you know, inspired a lot of other stuff because it comes from that whole the Narnia zone and the Harry Potter zone that we kind of discussed in our first episode. But it literally took until like 2001 for there to be a film that executed that. And when you look at really well-reviewed and really famous and beloved fantasy films, there's a lot of kind of children's fantasy films. There's a lot of dark and experimental fantasy films. And there was that period in the 80s where there were kind of a lot of the, the sort of labyrinth and legend and films like that, which are like really fun and quite odd and are very, you know, puppety, lots of puppety movies. But like, this is the equivalent of like Star Wars happening well after the blockbuster genre has been like completely solidified in the public mindset. And it's just really weird that it took this long. I think sci-fi is like easier and there is like more of an obvious market for it maybe and like more of an understanding of where it goes because there's there was just more of a basis from day one for here's a spaceship story and then you've got so much basis in the culture of doing space for doing spaceship stories that you can make Star Wars or like Solaris or something. But like when you look at the post Lord of the Rings era, it didn't actually have the effect that Star Wars did. 
because we do now have more fantasy media and like the things that immediately spring to mind are Game of Thrones and The Witcher and there's also kind of a lot more animated fantasy I think like there's stuff that's just really directly Lord of the Rings influenced like The Dragon Prince which is an animated Netflix series but like the Warcraft movie is bad <laughs> The Witcher God love you. I know a lot of people who are listening to this show will be fans of The Witcher, but it is bad. It's a very badly written nonsense show, which I fully understand the appeal of while also thinking it's terrible. And then obviously Harry Potter films are just like, you know, they're not kind of doing anything particularly interesting artistically. And you're completely right that it still feels so unique and revolutionary to watch these and see the combination of really sincere storytelling and real attention to world building detail and just the incredible production values. And it's completely different from the vast majority of other very expensive blockbusters, which are spending loads of money on stuff, but they're they're just spending money on like popcorn. They're not spending money on being thoughtful and interesting. And I do think that it is a lot harder just for Hollywood studios to understand the appeal and complexity of fantasy stories. Because we could have gone in a direction of there being like loads of other really big like best-selling fantasy novels being adapted and it just didn't happen well i think the sci-fi comparison is really interesting and i mean not novel obviously sci-fi fantasy is the like name of this genre in books right but (laughs) in film i have not thought about this in these particular terms before but i feel like it's impossible to overstate the influence of 2001 as base odyssey yeah right which we have talked about Um, on this podcast before we have done an episode on that movie, but that movie has definitely come up in discussions of other films. I rewatched that a few years ago. I saw it at the cinema and I had seen it in college, but in the interim had seen a lot more sci-fi films and space films in particular. And I was like, oh, right. Like every single movie set in space is a ripoff of this film. And it's like serious and prestige and it sets the groundwork to make loads of other sci-fi films that are serious and prestige and also tie into real world politics and real world technology in a really kind of accessible way and that way you can have all those like stupid repetitive discussions about like oh this is like elevated science fiction or like it's not for sci-fi for star trek fans it's like sci-fi for brainy geniuses or whatever and with fantasy there was that conversation never happened and i think a lot of people are just kind of embarrassed and confused by the concept of telling a romantic story about like a big old dragon or whatever and then kind of the conversation that happened instead is like oh this is fantasy for adults because it's like really gritty yes (laughs) which is not the same thing (laughs) right whereas in literature like there was just so much happening the whole time because people were writing yeah i mean obviously it's like you know Ursula Le Guin, like, decades ago. (laughs) Right. And, like, I was reading all kinds of books as a child and young adult, and, like, YA fantasy is a really rich territory and has been for decades. And there are plenty of series that they could have adapted, but the cinematic tradition just isn't really there. And so these movies really do feel like a unicorn and obviously they are also influenced by like David Lean epics from the mid 20th century and like various yeah. other cinematic And there's like things. so much historical stuff going on here like it's extremely rooted in real historical research as we have discussed in last month's episode. Yes but the fantasy element it just I don't want to say sui generis completely but it does have that kind of feeling and then it doesn't 
like the effect that this had on movie culture was not about the actual artistry of the movies. It was about Hollywood being like, oh, we can make a series of films for a lot of money that will make a ton of money. And let's do that instead of making like mid budget. And they movies. developed all these like new visual, visual effects technologies. Yeah. It's like, that's not the lesson we needed to learn from this. Right. <laughs> and Peter Jackson himself goes on to make a number of movies that are completely like bogged down in visual effects stuff, right? Recently, like the Mortal Engines movie appeared on British Netflix, and one of my friends messaged me being like, Oh, is this movie good? And I was like, No, this is after Peter Jackson stopped making good movies. And ironically enough, this is one of those YA fantasy books, which I don't recall it being like a masterpiece, but I recall it being very interesting and fun and like, you know, distinctive to read. And then it was turned into this absolute like nonsense blockbuster that got terrible reviews. So, yeah. And I think it's like one of the real triumphs of these films also. Like, A, this special effects stuff, which we have talked about, is extraordinary. It was a huge, huge breakthrough on a number of fronts. But I was thinking watching this movie that, like, they actually have a huge amount of practical effects also, which we've talked about in the sense that, like, all of the, like, bowls on the table in Rohan are, like, real bowls. Like, that kind of physical stuff is really important and gives you a sense of the place being tactile but like there are scenes in at Minas Tirith when they're having the battle where they've absolutely like blown up a real wall and like a wall is collapsing right and I remember watching the special features on the Band of Brothers DVD that I had you know at the age of 18 and that was made around the same time as these films like right at the turn of the century and there are a couple really bad visual effects shots in those in that show, but for the most part, it's all done practically because it was sort of right before VFX advanced enough that you could do everything. Well, this is kind of like like we were talking in our Star Wars prequel trilogy episodes, where it was like those films were made literally at the same time as this, and they look terrible by comparison, and it just depends on who was working on them. Yeah, but. The effect in Band of Brothers is that they have these battle scenes in Europe in World War II where, like, they are fully blowing up buildings. And, like, you know, there's questions about waste and whatnot, but, like, the effect when you're watching is that you really feel that it's real because they have literally blown up a building. And I think in these movies, they do an incredibly good job of melding both the digital effects stuff and enough practical effects and, like, the actors doing impressive fighting and stuff and riding on horses that it just it feels tactile enough that you do really feel like you're there and I think the biggest accomplishment technically of this movie like if I was going to single out one thing and obviously it's incredibly accomplished across the board but like the production design of this film in particular I found pretty awe-inspiring this is the movie where you really get to Minas Tirith and I, A, just don't understand how they shot it. Because I know that you... Yeah, there was like a point in our commentary track where like when you get to the point where Gandalf arrives and like is going up the white city of Gondor, like he kind of canters through the, you know, the steps or whatever and then like goes into the city and you see him running up through the city and we're just like, well, it does seem like they probably just built this massive city with like half a million people living in it and then just did an air, like a helicopter shot of him, you know, cantering all the way up to the top of the city. Seems pretty much like what they must have done because I can't imagine how else they did it. <laughs> and it's like a fucking model or something, but... <laughs> I know they used a lot of models in general in these movies, but particularly for the White City. Like I remember seeing 
the models in the special yeah. in the yeah. um, special features stuff that I watch. But they also have all these shots of people running around in the city that look completely real. And I don't want to know how they did it. I enjoy living in the mystery. But the sense of that city as a real place is so persuasive. And, like, Rohan, too, they do a great job, which we talked about last time, but because it's yeah. sort of these, like, isolated buildings, it's not as impressive to me from, like, a how the fuck did this happen level, right? Whereas, like, this it's like this is a completely realized city that doesn't exist. <laughs> I was really looking forward to that while watching the film this time, because obviously in our first episode, we were kind of talking about the philosophy of the production design and how it kind of as well as being extremely well-researched and detailed and beautiful. Um, it's this kind of historical tour of Middle-earth where you have them traveling back in time through Middle-earth's history, kind of starting off at the 18th century pastoral English village in Hobbiton, and then sort of going back in time until you get, you know, the Anglo-Saxon Rohan, and then you get to this classical sort of Greco-Roman period with Gondor and then you get back to Mount Doom which is like this ancient volcano beginning of the world sort of demonic history and so I was obviously kind of looking out for Gondor being like well I don't remember this being particularly classical but re-watching it as an adult I'm interested to see what happens and it's like first of all there's a great scene with Denethor which we will discuss in a minute because Denethor is a great character in this movie where he's like chowing down on all this food to like symbolize how spoiled and awful he is while his troops die but he's got like all this quite like Mediterranean food he's got grapes and tomatoes which we haven't seen before because it's all very sort of English and it do they don't kind of go oh this is Italy or this is Greece like it's all very much sort of Britain because everything is basically Britain they cast more people with dark hair but also instead of it being like a realistic sort of vision of ancient Rome or something like that it very much resembles that 19th century uh, romantic neoclassical art style where it's less to do with depicting a real example of history and more to do with like this image of sort of distant columns and everything is sort of grey and white marble and it's kind of tragic and historical and you get the impression of this sort of decaying empire which is obviously kind of the whole point of Gondor and you also have this other I can't remember what it's called, but it's sort of the place that's on the border of Mordor where you have uh, Faramir. Osgiliath. Where it's like the ruined city. Or Osgiliath, yeah. The ruined city, which is all kind of even older and is sort of the real sort of classical, this is what things looked like 500, 1,000 years ago, um, which just worked super well. And once we had our little scene with him eating grapes, I was like, oh, there's grapes in this part of the world, <laughs> is there? <laughs> very, very artistically coherent. Unlike when they introduce all of the kind of Easterlings, when they have the orientalized foreigners who are siding with uh, Sauron who we don't really need to go into anymore because we discussed that in earlier episodes but I felt like the more screen time they had the more frustrating it was kind of both in the fact that obviously it's like there's a lot of like racism and kind of aesthetic cultural appropriation going on there but also like the fact that they just introduce them and give them loads of screen time in the battle just raises loads of questions that you don't have elsewhere because we don't have a question like we don't question why the orcs are following Sauron because the movies are like here's some monsters who are like clearly horrible little evil gremlins and they want to follow the bad guy who's a big evil glowing eye and it's like sure but then when you introduce a bunch of humans it's like all of the other humans have like sound political motives for their decisions 
you see Theoden kind of struggling with whether or not to go to Gondor's aid in this movie, which is like his kind of big decision thingy. And then you just have like all these people who show up and it's like, so they don't even live here. Like they've clearly traveled across the ocean in their ships to come here and fight this battle that like isn't visibly relevant to their lives. And they're siding with Sarwan for reasons which have not been explained. And I'm just like, this is bad. Like it's bad on multiple levels. And the only way that I could like imagine a logical explanation for this is that there are like a bunch of weird separatist cultists who are like running off across the ocean to join Sauron's forces and everyone back home is like what the fuck are you doing man like it's not your it's not your fight <laughs> which needless to say is not textual oh, so. no, ba- no basis whatsoever <laughs> in canon but I was like it literally just makes no sense because like they don't give you any background for them and obviously there's like some background in canon but like I don't think very much so yeah I mean I think Skipping a little bit ahead in our in our little outline that we've made, I feel like one of the things about this movie that is pretty impressive is that it's basically all action, right? Yeah, and which is literally the opposite of the first one because there's hardly yeah. any action at all in film number one. And normally that would not be my cup of tea. I mean, something like Mission Impossible Fallout, which is literally just like a series of set pieces. I love that movie because it's not a. a it knows exactly what it's doing, right? Yes, it's but, not attempting to be like a crossover appeal blockbuster. Right. <laughs> but oftentimes when there's too much action in a movie, I'm just like, ugh, come on. And I do feel like this film could have a little bit more talking. But for the most part, I don't think it's a problem. I think that it's structured really well. And it's the the way the narratives cut between each other is done very, very cleverly. Like, you, it just feels very propulsive. Like, you just want to see what's going to happen next. And, um, but it's too long. It's three hours, 20 minutes long, which is just, I mean. When I, when I looked at the length, because it's like, the, it's already, it was already shocking to me that the first film was three hours long. Cause it was hard for me to imagine like my 12 year old self going to the theater multiple times to sit down to watch like a three hour film. But like three hours and 20 minutes is a fucking long film. And Hollywood is uncivilized. So they don't give you a dinner break in the middle. Like, Bollywood gives you a dinner break. Hollywood does not give you a dinner break. They used and to. And obviously we watched... No more. Yeah, they used to. <laughs> they used to understand. And it's like, this is just another chance for them to sell popcorn. You'd think they'd be, like, jumping on it, considering the length of all these, like, fucking Batman v Supermans. But, um, yeah, three hours and 20 minutes is a pretty long film. I didn't feel like I was sort of exhausted or anything towards the end, um, because obviously it's very good. But there were certainly elements that could have been cut and they could have trimmed down those fight sequences. Well, I think the obvious thing to cut is when the Easterlings show up. Yeah. Which you then have to do changes to the second one also, but like this is the part of the these films that are really bad, so this would not be like a trial, right? But there are basically like three huge battle sequences in this movie. There's the initial huge battle sequence at Minas Tirith. And then there's like a second wave of that big battle, which is when the Easterlings show up and the elephants are there. The elephants are very fun, but you don't need them. Yeah. I mean, I love the elephants. Like much as I enjoy the ele- elephants, we don't actually <laughs> No, <need them. laughs> it's just more of the same stuff dramatically, right? And then the last battle sequence is when they go up to the gates at Mordor to like draw Sauron's attention away, which is not really dramatically necessary either, but it achieves some useful things that we can talk about a bit later. But if you cut out the middle part, it just lets the movie breathe a little bit more and there's not quite as much fighting. And you get rid of the problem of like 
why the fuck are these people here? This makes no sense. And it's very racist. So that would be my fix to this. And then you could also have a little bit more time with Eowyn, who I feel is kind of underserved. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously they they remove Eowyn's romance with Faramir, which is in the extended edition. But I was like, I could really go for that. Like, I would love to see some, some of that situation going on. Yeah, and I feel like the moment when she kills the Witch King is obviously very satisfying, but they cut away to something else so fast that it feels a little bit anticlimactic. Yeah. And I think Miranda Otto is great in these movies, but I feel like they just don't totally know what to do with that character. Whereas, I mean, I have not read these books in so long, but I remember, and obviously when I was reading them, I was just like so excited about her as a kid, but I just remember her having this feeling of importance, even if she wasn't in them that much, like the weight of that character was really huge. And also... You don't know that it's her until she takes the helmet off on the battlefield and kills him. And like, I was 11, so I didn't couldn't figure out in advance that it was her. Like, I'm sure a more sophisticated reader would. But the whole setup of that sequence is meant to be very awe-inspiring in a way that the movie just doesn't quite pull off, I think. Um, and I think it's because it's like trying to juggle five things at once. Whereas in the book, you get to sort of like experience that moment as like oh my god this is really huge as opposed to it being like all right and on to the next thing and on to the next thing that's my only really like structural qualm with this film yeah i mean when we were watching it together one of the things we just kind of kept saying to each other was like they've actually done a really good job of balancing the various storylines because even though it is extremely action heavy like the way they edit together because they've basically got, you know, they've got Rohan, they've got Gondor and they've got Sam and Frodo going to the ring. And then occasionally you also get some stuff like with the villains. So you know what's going on. Yeah. Also actually come to think of it, Saruman, I think had like a bunch of screen time in this film, the extended edition. And they're basically like, yeah, fuck him in this one. <laughs> but um, it's like, forget it. He's not relevant anymore. They have like so many characters to keep track of. And I mostly recall having watched the extended version and I just remember finding all of the Sam and Frodo stuff like fucking exhausting. And that may just be that my tastes have changed since the age of like 14. But um, a five hour movie or however the fuck long it is with all of the footage left in, that's like too much hiking. Whereas in this, it's like you break up the stuff with Sam and Frodo, which is like very emotionally intense and also quite like grueling aesthetically because they're all just like rolling around on grey rocks for hours. Um, and then you have more stuff going on with Aragorn, who has way more screen time in this film. And then the you have a much, you have like a much better idea of the kind of the politics in this one because they've done this gradual introduction to the general like world of Middle Earth and where the kings stand and that sort of thing. So you get to this point, and you're like, oh, we've already met Theoden, we know the concept of Rohan, and then once you get to Gondor, it's just super effective. And I think. We should talk now about your wee hobbit pals and Gondor. Yeah, that is like a great part of this movie, which I hadn't really remembered. It was like this rules. It rules. <laughs> it's great. I remember being really excited that Pippin was suddenly like a main character of this movie. <laughs> yes. He's one of the most main characters of this film. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten. He has a great role. And Billy Boyd, who plays Pippin, completely pulls it off, which is very impressive considering the fact that he's pretty much comic relief in the first two movies. 
they basically use him as like the window into what's going on with Denethor, um, who is totally just lost it. And I think it works really well because he's just a normal person like us, right? And all of this absurd madness is going on with these nobility, essentially. But because he's been a bit of a silly figure in the first two, the fact that he now has to become serious, I think works really well because the performance works. Like, obviously, if that component weren't there, it wouldn't work. But I found it quite affecting to all this. I mean, we were talking in the commentary there, all the hobbits are sort of like characterized as like children. And Billy Boyd was like in his 30s making this movie. Yeah, like, I mean, he he's definitely like visibly he's like 35. You're, you're like this little boy. <laughs> but he's playing him that way. Like he's an actor. Yeah, he plays you know. him that way. Yeah. And all of a sudden he has to kind of grow up really fast. And he clearly is decent. And everyone around him is just acting like a maniac, especially Denethor, who's fully just insane. And it really grounds the movie, I think, because so much of the rest of the film, like, by this point in the series, it's gotten to this sort of grand level of, like, archetype and symbol. And you have this character in the middle of it who's just like, what is going on? (laughs) Like, I'm just scared of dying and, like, I don't really belong here, but acquits himself well. Like, I just think it is, I just think it really works. And I mean, he's particularly relatable to me because he's a local boy. He got married in a bar right in the corner from my house. <laughs> so I was watching this and I was like, clearly he just decided to not do much after this film, right? Like, obviously, it's not like everyone in these movies went on to have these huge careers, but Dominic Monaghan was on Lost and like did some other stuff. And Elijah Wood clearly was just like, fuck it, I've made my money. Like, I'll do the occasional And Billy Boyd whatever. was like, I'm going to settle down with my wife and have a comfortable life in Glasgow. <laughs> His Wikipedia page? Amazing. Truly incredible. This man loves to surf. He's got a band. He has some hobbies. He did some tourism, like, voiceover for Scotland because he loves Scotland. And I was just like... You are so normal. I love this. Yeah, and he does, like, one piece of work every year. Clearly, you know, bringing that money in. Maybe two pieces of work a year. And they're always something pretty respectable. Nothing, like, really prestige but it's, like, some cool and chill jobs. And it's like, God, love Billy Boyd. He's really, he really, really, he's made all of the correct choices, I think. And also, he... In this in this same year was also in Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World, which we will be discussing in Morgan's three and a half hour long uh, Oscar segment <laughs> at the end of this episode. <laughs> um, because I remember watching Master and Commander and being like, "Holy shit! One of the Hobbits is in this movie." Because obviously, one had never seen them in anything else by this point. Yeah, yeah. So that was that really warmed the cockles of my heart. Um, I think he and Dominic Monaghan are also like. Quite good oh, friends yeah, to this day, which yeah. I mean, pals. you love it. It's it's great. So I love that um, Jonathan Noble plays Denethor and is great, tremendous, fucking alarming, like really upsetting performance. I'm sure I said this in one of the previous episodes, but like I love the unusual variety of acting acting styles that are in this movie because, like, for the most part, <laughs> in a film, it will be there will be like a consistent style of acting right occasionally in this type of movie you will have like an old ian mckellen type 
doing old man theatre acting and then everyone else would be doing like regular American person acting because they've not gone to like the Royal Shakespeare Company's training academy for 50 years. But in this, you've got fucking everything going on in there. All of the hobbits have to be all relatable and normal, but like some of them are relatable and normal in like a genuine way, like Frodo and Sam, and then some of them, like Merry and Pippin, are being like cartoonish British bumpkins. And then you have lots of action heroes. You've got whatever Orlando Bloom's doing. Then you have the really lofty, serious, like Shakespeare actors. But you've also got some fucking wild ass shit going on, like Grima Wormtongue, who is fully going like massive cartoon. And it is amazing because he's so slimy. They've knocked the makeup out of the park. It's absurd. Oh, not to mention all of the fucking orc makeup, because with this final movie, they really pulled the stop out, because they've got all these people with these, like, their whole face has got shit going on. There's a guy with, like, a head on top of his original head. Amazing stuff. But then with the kings, Theoden, obviously, is this very kind of straightforward historical king character. Very straightforward. And then with Denethor, the perfect balance of, like, not quite overacting while still being, like, a massive, huge freakazoid. Tremendous work from John Noble. Very, very creepy. <laughs> yeah, just really, really good. And he's not really in the movie very much. But in his couple of scenes, he just completely conveys what that character is like from much more time in the book to my memory, which is always really impressive to me. David Wenham also is basically in this film for like five seconds as Faramir. And obviously you've gotten him from the last movie too, but they kind of mischaracterized him in the last movie. And he just, just like him looking at his dad when his dad's being a shit to him is effective enough that you're like, oh yeah, I feel really bad for you, man. Like, this sucks. Again, would have been nice to have this stuff with Aelin and Faramir, even in a cursory way. They show them standing next to each other at the very end of the movie, having gotten together (laughs) without having shown the romance. And you're like, okay. I also should, my, the, I forgot to say when I was like, I don't have any other criticisms of the structure. Uh, the Arwen scenes, garbage. Pure I, garbage. I couldn't believe you had not once again dissed the Arwen scenes, which you tore apart in, in last month's Ooh. episode. <laughs> so I, the, I read some reviews. The best one was uh, Elvis Mitchell in the New York Times, who was having a great, a great time reviewing this film. And the way he described Arwen in this movie. I'm going to read this sentence. Ms. Otto, uh, Miranda Otto, anyone, stakes a worthy claim for every moment of screen time, while poor Liv Tyler, as the elf princess Arwen, is limited to dialogue that sounds like a spoken portion of a Spinal Tap album. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's not her fault, but I feel that is pretty much correct. And... The romance between Eowyn and Faramir, obviously it's just one chapter in the book, but like that's so much more of a human thing than the Gorn and Arwen stuff. And they clearly were just like, well, but this is already in the movies and then tried to do something with it and it just failed. I also must read this man's quote about Aragorn from this movie, which is beyond belief. Aragorn has the slinky swagger and dreamy stubble that make him look like a legend created by Tolkien, Sam Shepard, and Ralph Lauren. Fortunately, Mr. Mortensen also has a touch of modesty as an actor, which allows him to take up space as if he belongs in the center of the frame, rather than battling the other performers for it. Which is totally true, but uh, Tolkien, Sam Shepard, and Ralph Lauren is an amazing trifecta, too. Invoke. It is a stunning description. I was like, uh, it's all correct. I, I agree. But uh, 
Yeah, Arwen's stuff is bad. I feel like these movies do not do a great job with the women on the whole. Obviously, the subject, the original source text is it's a bit, you know, it's a bit of a problem there. But um, it's a bit disappointing. Galadriel is, comes off the best of the three, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I literally remember when I read those books counting the number of women who had dialogue and it was like five or possibly four. It, I know? believe it's four. <laughs> I believe there are four of them. I mean, maybe there's like someone who says one thing that I've forgotten, but uh, it's 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 low. Um, let's talk about Frodo and Sam uh, before we get to the end. Well, they'll lead us to the end. I think this film does just just a tremendously better job with them than the last one. Um, I had complained last time about the two towers doing a poor job with this part of the story. Um, Gollum is great in that movie, obviously, but I think for Arthur and Sam, it just really doesn't work. Not through any fault of the actors, yeah. but it just... I mean, you know. I think I feel like with the other with the other main storylines, it's because it's so action focused. Like they have a really clear structure in terms of what they're doing physically. Whereas with Frodo and Sam, what they're doing physically is very simple because they're just like hiking towards Mount Doom for the entire movie. But they have an extremely clear emotional arc. Yes, and they just allow them to play that in a much more evocative way than in the last film, which. I didn't. I couldn't really grasp what I was meant to be getting from those performances, and in this, Sean Astin in particular just really gets a lot to do as Sam, who is obviously like the heart of these novels and this story. And um, him, he's just such a good boy. I we know. were both like screaming. There's this sequence where Gollum gaslights Frodo into breaking up with Sam by stealing all of the food in the night, throwing over a cliff and then like leaving crumbs on Sam. So he's like, oh, where's all the food gone? Sam's eaten it. And it's like the most heartbreaking thing in the entire trilogy. And I'm just like, Gollum is the worst person who's ever lived. I can't believe the snack food's been thrown over the cliff. And honestly, that seems like a screenwriting lesson that everyone can take heed of. Because in the end, no one actually gives a shit about the big old eyeball because it has no emotional resonance whatsoever. Which is not really criticism, it's just there to function, it's like there to pivot the story around. But, um, God, the betrayal and the fact that Sam is still so loyal and loving and like follows him doggedly all the way up the mountain, right up until the point where Frodo has fully been, you know, she-lobbed by she-lob. He's all wrapped up in disgusting spider webs by the evil spider lady. And Sam still like follows him and saves him and they, they save the day. And it's like, this is so sweet. And of course, this is also the absolute pinnacle of the trilogy's uh, World War One trench friendship brotherhood concepts. I mean, he literally carries him up the mountain to go yeah. to the... Oh. Heartbreaking. I know. Well, and also he sort of maintained this hope the whole time that they're going to get to go back home, which of course they do get to do. But, yeah. but Frodo is just like pessimistic. Yeah, and Sam realizes at a certain point that it's not going to happen, which again, obviously it does, but... It certainly is looking bad. And that, like, he's been the most optimistic character the whole time. And him kind of realizing, like, yeah, this, it's, there's no way. But, like, carrying him up anyway, because it just has to be done. I, oh, it's really, really affecting. I also had, like, a different kind of take on it watching it now. Because, like, obviously, as a kid, I wasn't really kind of considering them to be different ages. 
But um, as an adult, obviously, like, Sam is older. He doesn't look that much older. But because when we started watching, I was kind of looking up what all the actors' situations were at the beginning of the movie. Um, it was kind of like, oh, Sean Astin had, was, like, a new father. He just had a kid. Yeah, he was kind of mentoring Elijah Wood, who obviously by that point had been in other films because he was a child actor. But, you know, he was like, I'm going to look after this 19-year-old who's on set with me. And I was watching this like, oh, it's so sweet. He's looking after young wee, <laughs> young wee Elijah Wood. <laughs> Which is also, like, in the books, I don't... I think Sam's meant to be younger. So you get this I, different I dynamic yeah, remember. in the film, which adds something to it, I think. Not that it's, like, made a... You know, they don't talk about it, but um, there's a definitely an element of that in there. I think Elijah Wood is very good in this, too. I think he gets a bit lost in the second one because he doesn't really have anything to do except, like, look you know, tormented. Not that he's bad, it's just that he doesn't have, he doesn't have a lot to do. And in this, there's a lot more sort of texture to that. It's a lot of wild facial expressions to do as well. Oh, it's great. He's really good at that. He obviously just, as I said, decided to not do a ton of work. I mean, he's worked, but it's clearly made the decision to not have like a huge career, but he would have been great in horror movies. <laughs> he so could be, but like he's got I'm the I'm sure he it. has been in horror movies. He does so much stuff, but it's always like, oh, I'm going to do like a rando project. Yes. Much like Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, very good comparison. But uh, yeah, it this the end of course is um, Frodo deciding not deciding, sort of being compelled to not throw the ring in, and then Gollum bites his finger off and falls in, which I remember reading on my couch in the living room in my house over Christmas break in two thousand one, and my mind was blown. Truly one of the most shocking things that, you know, I had encountered in literature up to that point. I still think it is. It it does feel quite shocking. I mean, there's so much tension. It's it's such a great, smart, intense thing to have happen right at the last moment. Well, obviously it's sort of, you know, foreshadowed, but... Yeah, of course. The entire structure of the story and of all stories like this is that like the hero has to accomplish this task and he struggles and he struggles and he struggles and he finally accomplishes the task and then he goes home again. And I really can't think of an example of another story like this that is structured in this familiar kind of epic way where he doesn't do it. Like it really is very uncommon. I'm sure there are examples, but like this is certainly the most prominent it just really, really shocked me as a child. It felt kind of taboo. And I think it is. it still feels very bold to me. And I think it is really important to the story he's trying to tell, which especially in the books, but they get at it in this film as well. It's just a very, very melancholy ending, which is also unusual in stories like this. Yeah. I mean, they effectively, they epilogue it. They have like eight epilogues. Yes. Famously. Which is, yeah, famously. Famously, it ends many times. But it's like, instead of just being like, and they all lived happily ever after, you're like, well, some of these people have to go and like build a country for the next 50 years. And some of them have PTSD and that sort of thing. So, I mean, yeah. the fact that Frodo just never gets better is kind of shocking as like a conclusion yeah. to this, right? Obviously, he gets to go off and like live with the elves and whatever. But... That's not, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good ending though. And it's just like, it's, I mean, it's slightly ridiculous to compare Harry Potter because like from a literary perspective, these are not on the same level. But like the reason why 
people are so fucking annoyed by the Harry Potter epilogue is because it just does everything wrong that this one does right because this simultaneously like it's a very clean cut hero's journey ending with like big battles and defeating the evil guy and most of the characters get happily ever afters but it's not without conflict and it does feel right that Frodo has all these problems and in Harry Potter they're just like every single one of these characters becomes like a middle class PTA mum and works for the government (laughs) and it's like what have we learned? Nothing. We've learned nothing whatsoever. This is the worst possible ending. (laughs) Yes and I think one of the things that's also really interesting and remarkable about this story is that he doesn't really kill anybody off. There are a couple of characters. Obviously, Boromir dies in the first one. He's the only member of the Fellowship who gets killed off. Um, Theoden dies, and Denethor. So the bad kings, I mean, Theoden is a, like, middling king. He redeems himself, but, you know, the non-Aragorn kings die. But basically, everybody survives, but that's not the source of the problem, right? Because that wasn't what he was writing about. He wasn't writing about death. He was writing about having lived through something horrible and then having to live with it. And obviously we have talked many times about Hollywood films refusing to kill people off and I think they should do it more. But what this kind of demonstrates is that you don't have to do that if you actually can tell a story that is, you know, well told to evoke that feeling of sadness and it's throughout the whole the whole story the whole all the books and the films to a degree as well this sense of like something passing and going away like the elves are all leaving and i just think it's really kind of unique and part of what's so affecting about it obviously the novels have this slightly stiff purple prose to them which is a bit old-fashioned but there is this real... But that just makes the funny stuff even better. Because it's yes. like you have this like really epic like poet stuff and then you'll have like a little punchline from Gimli and you'll be like, oh, Tolkien, you comedy genius. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But he, like, he just manages to convey the emotion really well, despite the fact that he's kind of buttoned up. And I think the books are more effective at that than the movies, but I found myself really moved by getting to the end of this last one. They just do a really good job. Like, we finished watching it the other day, and then I was, like, putting around my apartment, like, feeling very kind of reclaimed, both by the fact that, like, we were done. Obviously, we're doing this now, but, like, just the nostalgia of having watched them again. But also, the story is really... It's sad at the end, you know? Which is so not what popcorn movies are like. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's mournful and very emotionally engaging and thematically complex but not in a sort of like we really need to digest these themes kind of way and also it's a very rare perhaps unique example of a movie that we have so much nostalgia for and like if anything gets better with age (laughs) yes obviously as we have discussed they are not perfect but the flaws are minor enough to me that it doesn't have like a huge effect on my viewing experience and the positives certainly outweigh them a huge way it's just such a huge accomplishment it's really kind of awe-inspiring we should mention just very briefly before we move on to the oscars that they cut the scouring of the shire from the end oh yeah i'd forgot about that because doesn't that happen like chronologically after they've defeated sauron and they were like yeah by the way yes the war is still happening and it's fucked up (laughs) yes which is one of the most interesting things about the books yeah and it clearly just was not like 
it was impossible. Like there was just no yeah, you way. You can't put that in like the main film, but like yeah. it's it's a great a great concept, a great element of the story. And I think is one of the things that's the most kind of um, politically resonant if you read them again at any time, right? The, the idea that you can sort of topple the big bad guy and then it's like, no, <laughs> it's still going on. And also the idea that the Shire hasn't been sort of preserved as this like perfect little jewel untouched by any of this, right? That Like it has sort of seeped in everywhere. I think is one of the, again, more bold things he does in those novels, but I completely understand why it's not in the movies. I think some people get really worked up about it. And it's like, there's this movie is three hours and 20 minutes long. <laughs> it's, it's too long already. It's not possible. But anyway, we have to talk about the Oscars, which we haven't really done in the first two, but this is, this is the big one that won everything. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won all of them. All of them. Congrats to Morgan personally. <laughs> so I, I must tell my little story and we'll talk about the, some other, some other stuff. I, I rewatched all the speeches the other day. This is how I celebrated Thanksgiving. The traditional fashion of rewatching all the Lord of the Rings Oscar speeches. <laughs> Love that for you. Love yeah. that for you. But so, you know, regular listeners will know that the Academy Awards are a grand passion of my life. And I really feel like the genesis was like learning all the wrong lessons from this year, which was that this was like the most I'd ever loved a movie in my life. And it got nominated for 11 Oscars and it won all of them. And I was just like, well, justice has been served. Like, I see how this works. Everything is fair. And the best movie wins everything. Great. But my parents were pretty strict about bedtime. As a child, I was, you know, 13, I would have been 14 at this point, but that was still young enough that I was not allowed to stay up. My parents had definitely given up the ghost by then. They were like, oh, "Oh, uh, you're not going to go to sleep before two? Yeah, pretty much. Mm, (laughs) Bummer. Uh, We had different childhoods. What I wound up doing was I watched uh, some of it, you know, downstairs with my parents and then wound up taking the tiny television that was in our guest room, sneaking it into my bedroom setting it up underneath my desk across the room from my bed, putting the volume on really low and then watching it in the dark (laughs) until whatever hour to remain undetected because I was furious that I was not allowed to stay up late. So I was clandestinely watching in the dark while all this was happening because I'm a lunatic. And then I was eventually too tired to stay up and did fall asleep because these went until like midnight And then woke up at like five in the morning before school to watch the end on VHS, which we had taped. So this was the like saga of my evening. And I was so over the moon, I cannot describe how thrilling this was to me. It was like the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. And all my friends, of course, were also very excited about this because we were obsessed with Lord (laughs) of the Rings. So... That was just the wrong lesson to take from this. And then Brokeback Mountain lost two years later to Crash. And I was like, I've been betrayed. <laughs> iconic, iconic loss of innocence narrative here for young Morgan. Yeah. But, uh, but I went back and rewatched the speeches, which was a, it was a fascinating exercise because this is like almost, it's like 17 years ago now, 18. And um, it's like a little window into like the Hollywood of the past. And all the presenters are these like mega famous people, which I feel like if you watch last year's Oscars 20 years from now, that will not be the case anymore. (laughs) Like there will definitely be people who you're just like, who the fuck is that? Because it's like lead of Marvel film X, right? And that 
again, not the case. It's like Angelina Jolie and Tom Cruise and whatever. Tom Cruise presented Peter Jackson with his award and was like extremely intense about it, as you would expect Tom Cruise to be about everything. <laughs> had Peter Jackson combed his hair? <laughs> no, he had not. Uh, he had absolutely not combed his hair. Fran Walsh, who is one of the screenwriters with him and is his partner. I don't know if they're married, but um, they've been together forever. She also, I mean... Just an amazing sort of bouffant situation with her hair that I think she must have done herself also. No professional touch, that thing. Which I remember from the time being like, that doesn't look like the other ladies. Um, (laughs) I love it. I love it. But as ever, the small technical awards, I mean, I shouldn't say small, but you know, the non-director, etc. awards, are among the highlights of this because (laughs) you just gotta watch all of them. The costume designers won, because they all won. And it's this very elegant woman, Nigella Dixon, and Richard Taylor, who also won for makeup. And she gives her little speech, and then he comes up and thanks everybody. And he concludes with this. I have typed it out to read to you. And Tanya, my partner, the young girl who at age of 13, I bought two live rats as my first present to her. You're still with me. What a great treat. Onwards and upwards, I love you. I, wow, that is the best Oscar speech. (laughs) Amazing. I am delighted. Amazing. And these are all New Zealanders, right? Like they've got, they're just sort of putting (laughs) around like, oh, I guess we're at the Oscars now. I have to share an image with you of the makeup people winning. It's, It's this nerdy man again. And then a guy called Richard Taylor. Let's see if I can, I would like you to admire this man, Peter King's oh, Elvis. hair situation. Elvis, back yes. from the dead. Uh, I will put this Love picture that. on our website. I just wanted to share these details because I, watching them, I was like, oh, right. All of these are just random, normal people. And this was like the fucking highlight of their lives. I mean, some of these people won multiple Oscars for various Lord of the Rings movies and some other things, too. But um, it was such a trip to me to be like, oh, yeah. It's just these random Kiwis who showed up like the Mad Max year when all these Australians won and were like, oh, here we are at the Oscars. And it has not happened since that a movie swept like this. The closest something has come is Slumdog Millionaire in 2008, which won 8 of 10, which is hilarious because that movie's cultural footprint is Deb Patel having a career. Which I appreciate. Yeah, it's like, thanks for, thanks for promoting Deb Patel. But He's like, marvelous. The film is fine. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't exist. And I think there's just been a huge shift in how these things get awarded, which I think is good. Like, I don't like these big sweeps. But it's remarkable that a movie that is in this genre, as we were talking about at the top of this episode, that is not really a Hollywood thing, that has been really... Like, Hollywood doesn't really know what to do with fantasy. It still doesn't know what to do with fantasy. And there's a lot in these movies that is not really, like, respectable in a traditional sense. Like, all the fucking orcs with their, like, weird skulls on top of each other. Like, the fact that all the old people in the Academy were like, yes, I've decided. I mean, they just, they just forgot it. Because it's like, that stuff is basically just a more expensive version of all the stuff you saw in Labyrinth. You know, that is the vibe. It's 100% the vibe. But because it's kind of overlaid with all this tragic death of kings narrative and obviously the films are just such incredible works of art that it's like yeah 
you're going to give them Oscars. And presumably the studio by this point was also like, we're going to pour a lot of money into these Oscar campaigns. And it was culturally ubiquitous. Like there was a lot going on, but it was also deserved. Um, Apart from cinematography, which it wasn't in for, which is when Morgan informed me of this, I was like, no cinematography nomination? (laughs) It's really... Criminal. It's bizarre. Master and Commander, as you said, won that one. And that is a beautiful film. film, But it's really weird. I don't know what happened with the cinematography branch. Um, The other big movies this year were Lost in Translation. I also watched Sofia Coppola's speech. She's so young. She's so young. Accepting it, um, which is really funny. They show all the Coppolas in the audience, like, clapping for her very enthusiastically. Nicolas Cage, like, losing his mind. They made her and her father come out to present an award together and, like, play the Apocalypse Now music while they came out. And she looks That's like she wants vibe. to die. <laughs> and it was the award before she accepted her award. So she's probably, like, trying not to throw up from nerves. And she's just like, no. <laughs> no, no. I mean, obviously she agreed to it, but it was pretty surreal. Um, and uh, Mystic River, Seabiscuit, and Master Commander, I think, were the five big ones. Which is like two great movies and three and sea biscuits. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Master Commander, Lost in Translation, and Lord of the Rings are all great. I don't think Master Commander was nominated for Best Picture. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was nominated for Best okay. Picture. Sea Biscuit and Mystic River have not had long cultural tales, shall we say? No, but uh. Yeah, I just, obviously this is my thing, but I think I've never gone back and watched, like, old clips like that in such a concentrated way. And um, you do get a, you do get a sense of, of the past. Lots of dead people there, which was sad. Bad jokes by Billy Crystal that have not aged well. <laughs> and then all these Lord of the Rings people very matter-of-factly picking their, their statues, because they clearly all knew that they were going to win. Annie Lennox was probably the most affected, which was very nice. She was very shocked and pleased about winning, which was for the original song, which was, which was cute. Love Annie. Yeah. Peter Jackson was just sort of like, oh, <laughs> here I am. Yeah, it just, the romance of it was very, very cool to me to relive, which you can do for any film that has won the Oscars because they put them on YouTube. And I think it's was cool that all the little nerds like me got to experience that at that age because it was very validating and made little cultists of us forever so um (laughs) yeah I don't recall I don't think I cared about the Oscars like I probably was vaguely aware of it but it wasn't something I was following and also people in Britain don't really watch the Oscars on TV because like it would be four in the morning yeah and I didn't have a TV many many things were standing in the way of me having that trajectory but Obviously, we were in the same way obsessed with Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. That does it, I think, for these yeah, episodes. That concludes this epic era of our podcast. <laughs> Thank you once again so much to Lucy for sponsoring these episodes. It has been a blast to watch these with Morgan and with you guys. And we also have another another new idea lined up for our Patreon because we were like, well, what, what what movies do we do after we've done the Star Wars trilogy? What other possible films could people want to sponsor? And we were like, obviously Lord of the Rings. But after this, 
if you wish, you may pay $100 on Patreon for us to rewatch and record a commentary track for Titanic. That's right, friends. Titanic. And rewatch <laughs> is in fact a misnomer because I have never seen Titanic. So. Oh my god. So you don't know what happens in Titanic. I mean, <laughs> I am quite familiar with what happens in Titanic. Yes. I guess technically I have seen part of it on the television that was on the uh, dining hall wall at Barnard College. I saw maybe well, 20 minutes to a half an hour of it without proper I saw, sound. I saw Titanic at my friend's seventh or eighth birthday party sleepover. It is the first <laughs> grown up movie I ever saw. We watched it on the floor of my childhood friend Victoria's living room. And it was also the first time any of us had seen a sex scene. So we were really quite astonished. <laughs> I remember it coming out, obviously, very vividly. And I remember all the chat at the elementary school about the fact that there was a sex scene in it. And that, you know, she was naked. The, he painted her and she was naked. And also that you could rent it from the video store and that there were two VHS tapes. This was, this was a huge point of discussion. The two VHS tapes. But as discussed previously, my parents were quite strict. So that was not happening for us. I don't think my parents saw Titanic either. They weren't really movie people. I have had the strong suspicion that I would not love Titanic. So I never got around to watching it. But it is a omission that I should really fill. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I would like it. I don't know. Uh, I think our commentary track would be quite entertaining because I have never seen that movie <laughs> and there's a higher probability that I would find it absurd. So... I mean, this movie is going to be so much fun to rewatch if someone does decide to pay for this episode. <laughs> yes. So that is available to you. I mean, I quite hope someone someone does that because yeah. I would like I mean, we also have... That. We already have many exciting episodes coming up which have already been sponsored by others but titanic just now i i can't believe i did not know that you'd never seen titanic mm -hmm. what a film it's a unique cultural icon <laughs> yes. who can judge whether it is good or bad quote unquote <laughs> i think part of the problem was obviously there were many years in between that coming out and avatar in which i could have seen it but once i'd seen avatar i really soured on james cameron I mean, it's definitely better than Avatar. Oh, I don't doubt it at all. And I know that he made many other earlier films that are meant to be great. And I will watch them one day. But I was, we were, what, 18 when Avatar, 19 when Avatar came out. And I was just, I reacted so strongly that I was just like, fuck this. <laughs> no. Next week, however, we will be discussing Mank, the new David Fincher movie, which will be on Netflix for all of you to watch wherever you are in the world which is about screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane, one of my favorite movies. So I'm quite excited to discuss. There's a great deal of buzz about this film. Yes, it's been very well reviewed, much talked about. Um, as a huge uh, old Hollywood buff, I'm very excited to see what he's done with it. And David Fincher is always interesting and a, a personality in his interviews. So there will definitely be... Be stuff to talk about. So yeah, that will be on Netflix. You can catch that there and then hear us talking about it on this feed. Uh, thanks to everyone who has been listening along to these episodes. We really appreciate it. Thanks again to Lucy. And if you want to listen to our commentary tracks of these films, they are available at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. 
Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor and you can find me talking about costume design on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I recently released an episode on Pacific Rim. Excellent. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.